Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Well, good morning, church. Good morning, real life. My name is Anthony. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to be with you on either this Sunday morning, if you're watching it uh, with us online, or if you are catching up to the podcast later or our YouTube channel later. It's good to see you whenever you are watching and listening to this. I am so thankful for our church. I'm thankful for all of the good things happening this summer. If ever you want to know what's going on in life of the church, you know, reallife.la. Uh, we'll kind of give you a heads up and let you know how to plan things around and where to invite your friends to. Uh, as summer wraps up and the fall season is about to kick off, uh, you know, it reminds me of this, this hobby that I have, this thing. Uh, some of you know that I do this. I, I picked up this hobby a couple years ago where I officiate high school football in the area. And, you know, on, on most Thursday and Friday evenings in the fall, you'll find me at a variety of uh, local high schools, usually on the sidelines and, and officiating football. Uh, and usually I'm assigned to schools where uh, the, the team is uh, from a Christian school or a Catholic school. The guy who assigns out who goes where, there's about a hundred of us officials that, that care for this area. Uh, he figured out if he puts a pastor on the sidelines for the Christian schools, it usually helps keep things kind of on track and going in the right direction. Uh, but the story I want to share with you today starts as most stories of officiating start, where I had to throw a flag on a, on a player who'd done a thing that was outside of the, the rules. I had to call a penalty. And, and I throw the flag, and, you know, I, I kind of explain what, what happened. And I hear from behind me up in the stands uh, this mom, a very, very loud mom, yell out, uh, that's a bad call, ref. You can blank, blank, blank. And I, I, won't, I won't tell you the, the words, but I will say um, it was loud and uh, they were strong words. They were kind of funny, but really profane. So I, I won't repeat them to you. Uh, but that happens sometimes, right? Parents get upset at a thing that's happened at a game. Their emotions take control. They say a thing they wish they could take back later. And I assume that's, that's what had happened. Let me fast forward later in the game, and that same kid does the same penalty. So I throw my same flag to make my same call, and that mom yells out the same thing from the stands. Hey, ref, you can blank, blank, blank. Now, what's different this time, you know, a lot of the same, a lot of the same, what's different this time, is she then got the entire section of her stands behind us chanting that phrase, over and over, blank, 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 blank. And it was wild. Uh, and unless you were there, you are not filling in the blanks correctly and, and you're better for it. So I turned to the coach and I, I let him know. I said, hey, coach, and they're, they're chanting, hey, coach, you're going to have to shut that down or I'm going to have to throw another flag on you. And just, you know, like football officials, most all officials, we don't like penalties. It slows the game down. We don't like it, but this thing's kind of getting out of hand and I need the coach to pull things together. So he turns to the player whose mom is leading this chant. The kid is now on the sidelines because we've had to flag him a couple times. The coach tells him, hey, get your mom under control. So the kid takes his helmet off, turns to the stands, goes, 
Hey, mom, knock it off. He's a pastor. And just like that, the stands go quiet. Remember, I'm on the sidelines. This is a Christian school. And these parents, like something clicks for them and they realize like, oh gosh, we should probably stop. But not this mom, not the mom leading the chant. She then says back this thing and it was loud and clear and I will never forget uh, the words that she used. She then yells out, I don't care if he's a pastor. I don't care if he's the Pope. Jesus forgives me of my sins and that ref can blank, blank, blank. It was so loud, which... Two things, two things. Number one, like, what a bold faith. <laughs> what, what assurance of salvation this woman had, right? She knows who forgives her sins. Also, like, significant disregard from, you know, the clear teachings of the New Testament that in grace, we're not called just to, like, boldly sin, right? Um, and secondly, I've never had this happen since. I had the coach turn to me, and he just says, throw the flag. Because this coach knew, like, part of my job as an official is to keep things safe, to keep things going, to keep things working the, the way they're supposed to be working. And, and in our lives, I know this is the transition, right? And this is, this is where we're going. In our lives, this is why I'm telling the story today. In our lives, the Bible, God's word, can be that thing that helps keep us in balance. It can be that thing that keeps us on the path we should be on that helps control those sidelines in our lives. The, the Bible points us to the life that God has created us to live. It points us to good things, but also on occasion, it throws a flag or two to say, hey, let's settle it down a little bit. Let's, let's keep things the way that they're supposed to go. Let's stay out of trouble on this one. And we're wrapping up a series of teachings today where we've been looking at heresies, both ancient and modern. We've been looking at uh, the way that the people of the church have at times gotten things wrong that we might learn from their mistakes. And I've said it before, but it seems as though some of these heresies, they feel a little bit like boomerangs where we, we name them, we notice them, we try to get rid of them, and then they just come back around. And so we're trying to put words to these things. We're trying to have a conversation around these things so that in those moments where they do come back around again, you know what they look like, so you don't catch them. And today, we're going to be talking about one heresy in particular. It's called restorationism. Uh, and restorationism, if we learn what it looks like, if we learn where, where the fault is in this one, my hope is we can avoid the next time it comes back around in our culture. And I will tell you, friends, there are shadows of it that we could see Today, there are hints and glimpses of it that it's important for us to know because this one looks to be coming back around. But to know kind of what it looks like to understand it fully, we're going to do a, a quick snippet of American history on this one. Uh, we're going to look at uh, how this heresy in particular really has been shaped a little bit by the American evangelical movement uh, in our country's history. Uh, here's here's what's what's good to keep in mind. Uh, there's a religious renewal that took place in the early years of our country uh, called the the Second Great Awakening. Now, often it's just called the Great Awakening, but it was the second one. There were two more that that came after it. And and during this Great Awakening, uh, it, it led to this massive shift in evangelical Christianity, where followers of Jesus moved from just having head knowledge about his teachings to actually like 
feeling them to be true and it changing their actions. This was a good thing. This was a great pivot for the sake of the gospel. But it's out of that movement that uh, there were some who chose to exploit the emotional fervor of the time. They leaned into American patriotism and, and a distrust of the world around them. And, and there were a few religious cults that came out of this season. Because imagine, if you will, you are someone who just lived through the American Civil War. And, and it, it feels like things could not get worse. And, and if you know American history, you know that it's not like the day after the war ended, things were just better. Things were still hard. The end must be near, you might even suppose, in that moment. And you may or may not be aware of this, but when, when people use that phrase, the end is near, to motivate people, uh, it, it can be a, a, a tactic that can be somewhat manipulative at times. Uh, we see this in coaching, right? If you uh, were ever an athlete, if you were raising young athletes that are runners or swimmers, you know that like coaches will, will cheer on a competitor by telling them, the end is near, the finish line is coming, and they, they drive them towards that last sprint. It can be motivating in that way. But also, politicians can use that the end is near language to motivate their base, right? If, if I am not the one in power, they might say, if I'm not the one making decisions on your behalf, things will end soon. The end is near, so elect me again, right? Re-elect me, keep me, keep me in, in power, they might say. And religious leaders are not immune from using this tactic. In fact, they will sometimes use that, that end-of-the-world narrative, the end is near, uh, in order to shift people away from traditional teachings of Jesus and into heretical teachings spurred on by fear and emotional responses. But I first want to talk about, like, when we talk about what other people believe, like, how, how do we do that? As Jesus followers, like, how do we do this thing well? Uh, the small group that Christine, my wife, and I are a part of, we spent a season where we explored kind of what other people believe, and we, we had conversations about it as a small group. Uh, like most small groups at our church, we often just follow the sermon series, or there are times where we say we really want to talk about this topic, and our small groups director will send us like a DVD we'll watch together. Uh, but on occasion, and this was one of those occasions, sometimes I'll write curriculum for our group to go through. And, and I could have probably come up with a better title for this one. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on, on the screen here. This is what we called those conversations. We said it was uh, talking about what other religions believe without sounding like jerks. Uh, because we're all, we're all parenting kids and teenagers in our group. Uh, we ended each session with the task of talking about what we talked about with our kids. And, and if loving God and loving others are the two greatest commandments— we want to raise kids uh, who are Jesus followers and who love people well, who, who are known more for their love for others than always feeling like they're right and they get to be jerks about it. And, and so we have these rules for our conversations. We call them housekeeping rules. I just want to share them with you today. It'll, it'll give you a picture of when we talk about what other people believe. Like, what's a way that some families in our church do that? What's a way that one of our pastors in our church talks about these things with others and, and with his kids? Uh, the first rule, the first housekeeping rule, is that the most important talks don't happen in one setting. Right? If we're going to be unpacking these things together, it's not going to be a one and done. Uh, it, it should be an ongoing conversation because that's how we talk about the most important things. Number two, we are reminded that not all people believe all things about any one thing. So if you say... 
people who believe this think dot, dot, dot. Like some of them, maybe even most of them, but saying all of them believe all things about any one thing, like that, that's just a bold statement and it's good to always keep in mind that that might not necessarily be true. Thirdly, that John 3, 17 is just as important as John 3, 16. That Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to rescue it. And that should be our posture as we have these conversations as well. Number four, believing you're right doesn't mean you get to be a jerk, right? Even if you're right. Even when you're right. Like that does not give you permission to then just stomp all over somebody else. Our job when we gather together for conversations like this with other believers and with people who, who we care deeply for, it really is that, that we get to listen and ask questions, right? And lastly, we only try to then fix things when that's what's being asked of us. And, and this rule is mostly there for me because if we've spent time together, you know, I like fixing a problem even if no one has asked me to. And so we remind ourselves in conversations like this, we only jump to solutions if somebody's saying, hey, can you help me with X, Y, or Z? And when exploring what others believe and how it might differ from historical Christianity, I want us to, to talk about two words to familiarize ourselves with. And, and those words sound more complicated than they are, but they're worth talking about. They are orthodoxy and orthopraxis. So just to, to practice saying them, let's everyone say orthodoxy. Good, good, good and orthopraxis. And if you're driving in the car listening to the podcast right now, you know, the car's next to you thought you're talking to yourself. That's kind of fun, right? They don't know what you're saying. And you might not even know what those words are. You might not know what you're saying either, but you do know the first half of both of those words. You've heard of them before. If ever you've been to an orthopedist or an orthodontist, uh, you know that ortho just means to make something straight or upright or right or correct. Ortho is, is kind of that correction, that move toward straightening. When, when I broke my arm uh, a few months ago in a car accident, I went to the orthopedist who did some x-rays, who looked at some things, who put me in a sling for a while. And, and his job was to make sure that my bone heals straight and correct, right? That's, that's the ortho part of that. And, and so when we're talking about orthodoxy, when we're talking about uh, orthopraxis, uh, and, and it's, it's similar to orthodontics, right? It's when I was in the third grade and I got braces and metal and rubber bands and all kinds of things. It was to, it was to straighten my teeth. It was to correct them because friends, there were some gaps in there. And if you think some of the like lisps that I still accidentally have are bad now, like it was, it was a thing, right? But the orthodontist helped take my, my teeth and straighten them out, right? And so orthodoxy is just simply ortho, right? Correct. And then doxy, which is knowledge or, or truth or wisdom, right? So orthodoxy just is right belief. It's, it's the right thing about kind of the, the wisdom that we have, right? The knowledge that we have. And then orthopraxis is right or correct praxis, which is just practice or, or worship or action. So orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxis is right action. And, it, and it's those two words that as we look at kind of heretical movements that have happened, we want to compare them to what, it, what is orthodoxy? Like what, what does the historical church say about this thing? And then orthopraxis, and, and what is that, that thing that the church has always been called to do? Like what are those right and correct and, and, and appropriate things to be doing and believing? And anytime that you hear a pastor call you to action or, or a spiritual leader that you follow, and they're trying to, to teach you something you've never heard before, 
I want to give you a model from scripture to follow that's going to help you discern if that teaching falls within orthodoxy and orthopraxis. It's a narrative story from the book of Acts. And Acts was actually written by Luke, who wrote the gospel of the same name. So today we are in the book of Acts, chapter 17. I'm going to pray for us before we jump into the text. If you're driving, don't close your eyes, but the rest of us are going to take a moment and pray. God, we recognize you are in this space. You're in this room. You are in the rooms that this message is being heard in. And God, we ask that, that your word would speak to us today. God, that through studying scripture, that you might change our lives and change them in such a way that the world around us comes to know you more fully. God, we are grateful for this opportunity to read scripture together today. And now we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and accepting to you, uh, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. So again, Acts chapter 17, I want to read this together. It'll be on the screen if you're watching. This is what Luke writes. In verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So I, I just want to give you a glimpse of, of the map here and where we're talking about, where in the world this is, because this is not, you know, here in, in Southern California. In fact, it's over east of Italy in, in what would be kind of modern day kind of Greece, right? So this is in the Mediterranean region. And Paul is on his second missionary travels through the area and has passed through. And he's, he's traveling a road that a lot of people in the trades would have been following, lots of people along this road. And he ends up in a city called Thessalonica. And anytime that I'm looking at a city in the Bible that feels significant, I then kind of ask myself like, so what city would this be like today? Give me, give me some kind of, give me a something, right? Um, and so here's some things about Thessalonica. Thessalonica uh, was, again, it's on this trade route. So you had so many people traveling in and through Thessalonica daily going from one region to another. So lots of kind of immigrant populations, lots of trade coming through, a uh, huge commerce port, right? So it's a port city as well. Also, additionally, it had a very heavy Roman military presence in that first century. And in first century Thessalonica, uh, a lot of the population was either a part of the Roman military or provided services for them. So if I'm trying to think through what's a city I'm familiar with that you might be familiar with that could compare slightly to Thessalonica, think San Diego, okay? Think of uh, a commercial city, right? Lots of, lots of commerce, large military presence, right? If you... Uh, have lived in San Diego, chances are someone in your family or someone you knew was connected to uh, serving in the military, right? That's kind of what the cities are. And think of the amount of people who travel from one place to another through San Diego, okay? Um, sometimes I, I kind of fact check myself on some of these things. And so I, I've been learning to use ChatGPT a little bit to be like, hey, ChatGPT. And this is how I type, by the way. Uh, <laughs> if I were to compare San Diego to Thessalonica in the first century, like, what problems are people going to have with that? So just so you can anticipate, uh, there are so many things that line up, actually, except for their climate. So just so you know, when we think of San Diego, when we think of the Mediterranean, slightly different climates. Other than that, the comparison holds pretty good, okay? And so this city that Paul is in has a synagogue in it, which means, and this is not near Jerusalem, right? There are enough people of the Jewish faith that they have their own place to gather for worship here in Thessalonica on this trade route with this heavy military population. Let's keep going. I know that was a lot for one verse, but it, it just helps set up 
what's about to happen. Verse two, as was his custom, uh, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So I love this. Like Paul, taking a page out of some of the things we just talked about, this isn't a one-and-done conversation. He's there for three weeks in a row, three Sabbaths in a row. Uh, Luke writes this, that that Paul uh, reasoned with them from the Scripture. So there was dialogue. Different than on a Sunday morning when you tune in online or you sit in the room and we just kind of talk at you and then you might have discussions afterwards. Paul encouraged dialogue on this one to show the people there that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and I love that Luke then adds in this little note that is more than just a footnote. It gives you a sense of that early church that the people coming to faith included prominent women. And, and that was a unique thing at the time, especially in Rome where rights were preserved for Roman citizens, like your, your rights were really just, if you were a man, if you were a woman, you did not have much. And yet in that New Testament church, Luke goes out of his way to say, and also prominent women were involved in this thing as well. It's, it's not just a, a good side note. It sets this Christian movement apart from some of those other things happening in the first century. And Luke goes on to write in verse five, but other Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. Poor Jason, by the way, right? Like, we don't know much about this guy. He probably was, uh, had the home where the, the local house church gathered, right? And so kind of guilt by association, they pull this guy in. Uh, Luke keeps writing. Uh, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And here's, here's where the turmoil, turmoil was coming from, okay? So Thessalonica, kind of you know, east, east of Rome, right? Uh, there, there's this thing that happened in the, the 40s in Rome, not, not like the 1940s, like the OG, the original 40s, uh, somewhere between 41 and, and 54, uh, there were riots that broke out in Rome between and started by and fueled by uh, the Jewish people and the Christians. And there was so much tension because the Christians are in this community saying, Messiah has come, the law has been fulfilled, here we go. And the Jewish community is going, but we'll lose our identity. We'll lose everything. Like, why are you disrupting this? That feels like blasphemy to say that someone claims to be God. What is happening? And and that tension kind of boiled over and turned into rioting. And so Claudius, who's the emperor at the time, didn't just shut it down. He expelled the Jewish people from Rome. He, He sent them away, which is part of where they then end up in places like Thessalonica to have their own synagogue there because they could not be in Rome anymore. And a decree went out uh, across the empire to watch for this tension between the Jewish people and the Christians. And so Paul comes to town. These people don't like what Paul is saying. 
they start stirring things up and the officials are like, shut it down, right? Like riots are bad. Riots in military cities, real bad, right? Uh, imagine, imagine what that, it's a race. They, they shut this thing down. And verse 10 says, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, right? They sneak them out, right? In the, in the middle of the night. And on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So Thessalonica, they hear the message. Some people decide to believe, but there is an emotional fervor that is happening and Paul and Silas, after three weeks, have to, have to get out of there. And then they end up in this place. And, and here's what we know about Berea. So it's about a day's walk, a day's journey from Thessalonica. Uh, it, it just moves us a little bit further west at this point. And, and in Berea, these people at the synagogue, these, these Jewish people, they hear what Paul is saying. And then they go back to the scriptures and they examine them daily to see this new thing you're saying, this thing that could kind of call into question our identity that, that you're saying completes the law, we're going to examine it ourselves. And the Bible does not say, Luke does not write, and how dare they not just believe Paul at his word. Instead, these people are held up, the Brians are held up as being noble. To, to look at what God is calling them toward and examine it, and then follow Jesus in such a way that not only do those Jewish people who have the law that has been completed, who've been waiting for Messiah, they don't just decide to follow Jesus and his teachings, but also Greek men and women do so as well. And there's a tendency we have as people to look fondly at, at what's behind us, and we look skeptically at what is ahead of us. Much of the conflict between the Jewish and the Christian communities in the first century uh, were centered around this tension. The, the Jewish people had been waiting for Messiah to rescue them, but once they were told that he had come and they were called to find a new identity in him and they were called into a future moving forward that, that might question some of what they had been doing, they pushed back. They held on to old things and valuing the past over what God is calling us to in the future, it's like, it's like this. It's like trying to drive a car, but instead of using the windshield, you're using the rearview mirror, right? And here's the thing about the rearview mirror. Uh, it shows things larger than they actually are, which is nice. That's a cool kind of like magic trick the technology does, right? Uh, also, the rearview mirror, it shows us a familiar image. Nothing often surprises us in the rearview because we've already seen it before. And that rear view, it rarely shows us something that's, that's dangerous. Those things that are behind us, those things that have happened in the past, they aren't going to be things that come after us later. And yet we follow a God and we, we follow the teachings of, of Jesus who calls us to go boldly into the future, to, to use the windshield that is in front of us, to look out ahead of us and trust that God is with us and to look past that rearview mirror that is hanging in front of us. How often do I look at that thing and point it at the rearview mirror? And sometimes, right, but not all the time, this should not be the thing that we use to drive forward. But the past, even in its messiness, it can feel more comfortable than the present or even the unknowable future. I have a friend who, who tells a story about when her son was younger, uh, 
you know, they, as most parents do, would try to help him appreciate things and go, you know, when, when I was your age, like we did not have seatbelts to keep you safe. So I need you to put that on, right? When, when I was your age, not everybody had TV. So be grateful for the time that you get to watch one. When I was younger, we used to have to walk to school in the snow, uphill both ways. You know, you know how parents say things, right? Uh, that, that we used to have it so hard, right? Um, so be grateful for what you have. And, and there was a day where this young son, uh, in, in overhearing then how his parents were talking about the current state of the world and how messy things were and how things were not all that great, uh, my friend tells a story that, that one day her son turns to her and says, so things were better when they were worse, <laughs> right? And it, it's hard to not look at the world that we currently navigate and feel the strain of things. It's easy to think back on simpler times and imagine that they didn't have the complex issues that we are currently facing. But the truth of it is every generation has had those same observations that you are having. You were not as old as you are now in the past. And you were not as aware of how complicated things were in the past as you are now. And, and the draw of restorationism, it feeds off of nostalgia. It, it feeds off of the hope that, that you will continue to put on the rose-colored glasses as you look at the past the generations before us have done. And in that, we might ignore the truth of Jesus' teachings and what scripture is clear on. Here, here's a snapshot of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, we, as a church, we run a preschool and after school program and it continues to grow and it's incredible. And a new school year is coming and it feels like we're always in the hiring process of bringing new teachers on to, to match our growth. And it means I'm often looking at resumes. I'm, I'm taking phone calls with people who are applying to work. And uh, if you are in a position where you hire and you manage people, you know that the rising generation just has a different work ethic than when we were younger, right? Nobody wants to work anymore. Am I right? Except that that's not a new observation. Like that, that is not unique to this moment. Let me walk you through a couple of snippets from some newspaper articles over the last couple of years, just to, to demonstrate that this is a thing that's been around for a while, as much as it feels like, but it's never been this bad. Here's, here's uh, just a, a snippet from some news articles. Here's one from 2022. Uh, the line there is, no one wants to work, right? In 2014, let's go back a little bit further. Nobody wants to work anymore. It has not always been that way. 2006, nobody wants to work anymore. 1999, nobody wants to work anymore. Let's go back further. 1981, they didn't want to work. Nobody wants to work anymore. 1979, nobody wants to work anymore. 1969, we'll go to the moon, but <laughs> nobody wants to work anymore. 1952, everybody's getting too darned lazy. Nobody wants to work anymore. It goes further back. 1940, nobody wants to work anymore. 1937, nobody wants to work anymore. 1922, they were writing, nobody wants to work. Oh, you want me to go further back? 1916, uh, nobody wants to work as hard as they used to. Thanks, 1916. 1905, none want to work for wages. 1894, 1894, it was written, it is becoming apparent that nobody wants to work these hard times. 
When we allow ourselves to romanticize the past and overlook clear teachings of, of Jesus in order to fight for a historical moment that never actually existed, and, and, and hear that, the thing that you feel like, well, it used to be this way, gang, it, it, it probably didn't. And we open ourselves to fall into cults and cult-like behavior that can isolate us from the people that we love and the grace that Jesus offers us. But gosh, you know, the past was so much better and, and things aren't going well now. There must be something we are doing wrong is the thing that we can fall into believing. And that's when a leader can pull you off mission by saying that they found a secret thing that needs to be restored, a lost teaching, a new or an ancient book, something that we lost and we need to hold on to again. There was a group that felt like the world was on its way toward ending after the American Civil War. Things had never been so bad. Something must have gone wrong. And then they discovered some new kind of math that told them, like it told them when Jesus was going to return. And it was, and he was going to rescue all of us. And it was in the year 1914. But then 1914 happened and World War I happened. And people felt like this is Armageddon. It's happening. Here we go. And yet, though it felt like the end of things, Jesus did not appear. And so that group that would later call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses, they would claim that Jesus came back, but he just came back and was like invisible. And here's the thing, things were getting worse and, and the end felt like it was near. And so they found new slash ancient teachings to follow so that they might feel like they could be Saved. There was a group that felt like things had never been worse. The great awakening was happening. No church felt like the true church. Something must have gone wrong. And then they discovered golden tablets. And it made sense. Like, you know how you love being an American. Well, good news. The Garden of Eden was in Missouri, right? And you know how Jesus died and he came back to life? Well, then he came back to life again and came to America, to, to, to tell his story and rescue people here. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints bled American exceptionalism in its founding years and even still today. They claim a truth that was long forgotten in order to restore what they believe to be the true church. Good people can look at how things are and feel like they've never been this bad before and yearn for, for a missing piece and a story that fills in the gaps so they might experience a sense of peace and relief. In college, I was friends with a girl named Thadia. Uh, we'd hang out, we'd got coffee together, we'd grab meals together, we would eat the world's greatest pizza at round table together. We had some classes together, we were friends. And one day we were taking a test next to each other and uh, you know, it was back, like we had to fill out these like scantrons, you fill in the bubbles for things and she's filling out the bubbles for her name. And I had, I like leaned over to her and I was like, Thadia, this isn't a joke. You got to write in like the bubbles for your name. And you're not because instead of doing Thadia, she was filling in the bubbles Obadiah. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay. And I told her like, write your name, not Obadiah. To which she then looks and just like whispering because we're taking a test, but also like serious. She just goes, well, where I'm from, we're all named Obadiah. And then she keeps going. And that was wild, right? And I'm going, what? she doesn't know how jokes work, but like, we'll, we'll talk about this later. And after class, I pulled a friend of ours, Stephanie, to the side. And I was like, hey, Fadia was doing this like weird jokey thing where she was filling out a test and wrote that her name was 
Obadiah. Can you believe it? And Stephanie goes, oh, no, 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 no. Like the place that she's from, like her family, everybody there, like all of their first name is Obadiah. I thought you knew. You see, there were, there were things that were happening in the world that were worse than they had ever been. And, and, and they were good once, but they weren't anymore. But luckily, there was this group that found a truth. Does this sound familiar? And, and everyone had overlooked that truth. And, and if they could just be the ones who restored things to the way they're supposed to be, then everyone would be rescued. But first, they all needed to have the name Obadiah. And I'm not sure why. <laughs> you know, reasons, reasons. And when new teachings come and someone is offering you a new truth, a political or a religious leader is letting you in on some sort of secret. Be like the Bereans and study scripture daily. Teach, uh, compare those new teachings to the teachings of Jesus. Do not get caught up in emotional fervor of the moment. It is fair to wonder about the motivations of your leaders. Test everything because that is what Jesus' followers do. So what do you, what do, you do though? like when someone you know is in a restorationist cult. And yeah, that's, that's the punchline. Welcome to church today. We're going to talk about how to rescue people from, from cults. Uh, but before like you throw on like a camo vest and go storming the compound, like please, please don't start there. Uh, here, here's what we should do. Any of us should do when someone we love, someone we care deeply for uh, is caught up in the heresy of restorationism. And step one is you do a self-check. The first thing we do when we hear uh, uh, that this is happening in someone's life, check yourself first. And I say that because when we are here gathered together as a church, when we watch messages online, when we listen to podcasts, it is easy for us to think about who needs to hear this message. There's a reason why share buttons on social media are there. Um, People know that you're more likely to use someone else's words to say the things you want to say than you doing it yourself. But your words will always be more powerful than the words of others that you share. And maybe you know someone who is in a group that leans cultish and you're tempted to share this message with them. It might not be like an Obadiah kind of a thing, but maybe someone's patriotism is leaning pretty heavily into their Jesus following. And you want to throw just a a flag in their direction, right? You you just want to help them help them get their stuff together before they accidentally find themselves worshiping like an invisible or an American Jesus, right? Uh, that's an approach. You can do that, but I'd actually encourage you first to start with yourself. Here's what I mean. When you can tell someone how something has impacted your life, the testimony of your voice after experiencing life change will always carry further than the voice of a stranger. So with that in mind, where are some places where restorationism has found footholds in your life? Where have you been trying to move forward while focusing on the rearview mirror? If you can tell someone of a place where untruth has found a place in your life and you're able to share how scripture came to help you move out of that and change your mind, that can be a compelling word for someone who is caught up in wrong belief. And once you have found uh, ways to share where you were wrong and how scripture pulled you back into orthodoxy and orthopraxis, Your next step is to love that person more than anybody that they are in a cult with. One of the ways that cults maintain power is uh, through conditional love. So your job as a Jesus follower is to show an unconditional amount of love and grace to those people caught up in these things. 
uh, cults that worship invisible and American Jesuses, they use the threat of expulsion and shunning to keep their followers in line. Restorationist movements thrive on an us versus them mentality, and they encourage their followers to break ties with people who might pull them away from that truth that they are trying to restore. So you get to lean heavily into grace. The grace God has shown you and the grace that you are called to show others that those people might know that you are on their us team. In all of his teachings, Jesus gave one new commandment. We find it in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And in the same way Jesus loved us, we are commanded to love one another. And how did Jesus love those around him? He loved them when they doubted. He loved them when they betrayed him. He even loved them when they nailed him to a cross. And it's for that reason, ultimately and finally, we should always start with Jesus. Should we examine our own hearts before we go to somebody who is caught up in heresy? Absolutely. Should we ensure that people caught up in heresy know that we love them unconditionally without question? But on your own and on my own, we don't have the power to rescue someone from a cult. But who can? Jesus. In matters like this, when you've shared your own story and you've shared your love with people who've fallen into the heresy of restorationism, Jesus' followers' best approach is to point people to the biblical Jesus and to focus on his teachings. Because restorationist movements claim to be seeking an authentic expression of Christianity, examining scripture daily, like the Bereans we read about in Acts 17, can help bridge the gap between those who find themselves within orthodoxy and orthopraxis and those who are outside of it, especially if that study is focused on the life and teachings of Jesus. So we start with examining our own life, right? We start with showing deep love for others because of the deep love that God has shown us, right? And we trust in Jesus, who sent his Holy Spirit to help guide us and shape us into the people that God created us to be. Am I right? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, help us be people who let go of the past things you've called us to let go of, to focus on the things you're calling us towards. God, give us grace and love towards those who have fallen away that they might come to know your love and your grace more fully. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we got to spend together today. And we pray this in all things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.